Hey all, welcome back to Get Psyched. On this episode, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite psychology topics, and that, my friends, is sex. Our guest for today is Molly Schwartz. She's a Barnard alum from the class of 2018, and currently she's in her second year as an MA student in clinical psychology and sexuality at Columbia's Teachers College, so represent. And she is also currently... Um, currently applying for her PhD in either community psych, social psych, or sexuality. So let's jump right in and let's get psyched. Molly, I have to tell you, when you first reached out to me, I was just so excited that I called my best friend. And the reason I was so excited is because you have successfully combined two areas of study that I have been and still am deeply passionate about, and that is clinical psych and sexuality. So you did it. You're a home run. Um, Sexuality is obviously one of these fundamental drives behind most people's, you know, feelings, thoughts, behaviors. It it seeks the it shapes the brain. It does so many things for us. It makes us pleasure seeking. But obviously, it's still highly taboo, and it makes the topic difficult to discuss both personally and within scientific inquiry. But I think in many ways, sex makes the world go round. So, to just dive right in, I'm interested in how you first became involved in sexuality studies and how you've chosen to incorporate that within a clinical psychology lens. Okay, that's a good question. I'm trying to think about when I started. Um, So my backstory, my mom is a doctor who retired when I was born. And she, when I was in high school, started teaching sex ed to refugees at a local charter school here in Atlanta, which is where I'm from and currently living out the pandemic. And she was teaching sex ed there and she like was always bringing home sex ed stuff. And, you know, I got the sex talk when I was like six because of, you know, (laughs) one of those friends that, you know, has an older sibling and tells you how babies are made and all that stuff. Um, So I got the sex talk when I was six and our family was like always open about sex and talking about it. So for me, it was never like a taboo topic the same way it was for a lot of people, but I never like really started talking about sex or talking about sex in terms of like a professional aspect or an academic aspect until I got to college. And I think I started it probably my junior or senior year. Uh, My senior year, I took Steven Stressner's Human and Machines class. It was a senior seminar and I took that class. And for my thesis, like my graduating thesis through his class, I wrote it on sex toys. (laughs) sex toys what exactly did you did you write about what was your thesis topic so my thesis topic was studying and Dr. Stressner like still remembers me to this day as the person that wrote about sex toys in his class was the first person to do so and I hope he still loves me for it um but yeah so I wrote about um how sex toys actually catalyzed the women's liberation movement and the feminist movement in the 1970s and how um, the movement to increase vibrators and masturbation in young women coinciding with, you know, birth control being 
approved by the FDA and Roe v. Wade, how all of those things kind of came together to start this movement of like feminist sex toy stores being founded around the world, but like particularly in big urban cities like New York and San Francisco and Seattle, and then how that impacted social movements, which was really cool to study in a social psych class like Dr. Stressner's and um, to study like how these tiny little machines that you wouldn't think necessarily have that much power, like can really shift social movements. So are we talking Betty Dodson right now? Have you ever heard of her before? Yes. Oh, I'm so excited that you know exactly who I'm talking about. Betty Dodson, for anybody that is listening, she's this incredible, I guess I'd call her just the quintessential American sex educator. (laughs) No. I wish you guys could see this. I wish this was a, a YouTube episode. She just pulled out the book, the really famous book, it's called Orgasm. Well, I read Orgasm for two, but you have sex for one. Yeah, she's just this pioneer within the pro-sex feminist movement. She's still, she's pretty old now. I think, what is she in her 80s? I think she she's just in her died 80s. last week. <gasps> this is like, no. a, I straight up sobbed. No, you Did didn't just tell me that on live. Did you just, t- I'm going to start crying. No. So, Did she die? Yeah, she was 91. This episode is now dedicated to Betty Dodson. She's seriously not only changed my sex life, but has changed the sex lives of so many of my my friends. Um, she continued to do sex work up until, obviously, she died last week. How? Wow, that's crazy. But yeah, what? when did you start learning about Betty Dodson? <laughs> So my mom like always had Betty Dodson's books around um, because Lynn is an icon. But so Betty Dodson was like someone I had heard about growing up, especially like studying feminism at Barnard. You know, you hear about like different women's liberation activists. And I had heard her name before, but I like really got I've like talked about her a ton in my thesis and was like talking about how amazing she is. And um she, it was honestly like one of my life dreams to work with her one day. And I'm devastated beyond belief that like that can't happen. And I like, she is such a pioneer. I will actually say this. So I, this is re- related, I promise. So I really hate Gwyneth Paltrow and I really hate Goop, but Goop Lab did a wonderful episode called Pleasure is Ours, where they had Betty Dodson on Goop and they like interviewed her and Carlin Ross, who's the head of the Betty Dodson like oh, education foundation. Ross. Yeah, she's so they oh, had she's gonna live on. on that legacy. She really is. Yeah, but go she's on. Amazing. So she had uh, so Gwyneth Paltrow had both of them on, and she had Betty Dodson like go through the whole Betty Dodson method of like masturbation, and she talked about all of that. And she talked about her vulva diversity project. She talked about body sex and all the workshops that she was doing, and they like had it was the first time netflix had vulvas like shown on screen they showed an or like a real life orgasm on screen for the first time which was amazing um carlin ross who was like in her 40s or 50s was the brave soul that chose to orgasm in front of millions of people um so good for her (laughs) i don't know that i would do that but good for her but yeah i definitely would not but Yeah, she She made it her mission to convince women that masturbation didn't have to be a shameful act. And 
I'm Did sure that she, I read the a few sections of it, but when I first got into Betty Dodson, I read Orgasm for Two because I'd always felt comfortable with masturbation. I think that that was not, never something I struggled with, but my area of study, what I'm interested in is specifically with heterosexual women, they rate their sex as the, you know, the least fulfilling within all of the different genders and sexualities because mm -hmm. there's obviously some sort of disconnect between men, heterosexual men and heterosexual women. So I bought that book, one, just to read it for myself and, you know, enhance my own sex life. But a lot of my friends were asking me questions because this is something I'm interested in about why they weren't having their best sex with men, but they were fine with orgasmings. And Orgasm for Two Everybody who's interested in this needs to read this book because she's in her 80s when she wrote this book, talking about having sex with a younger guy and how incredible that this relationship was for her. She's still having orgasms into her 80s. She considered herself a lesbian at a certain point, had no sex with men, and then in her very old age, decided that she was like, I, you know, fuck the labels. I'm just going to have sex with whoever I want to. And she did this up until she died. And she used to hold masturbation classes in New York, which is probably where you wanted to work, right? Yeah, she actually was holding them over Zoom all throughout the pandemic until two weeks before she died, which is amazing. Like, this woman was 91 when she died, and she was still doing Zoom masturbation workshops, which is just, like, incredible. Also, I do want to say, like, so for reference, I held up both of Betty Dotson's memoirs. The first is Sex for One, which is... It's like her manual on masturbation for women, but it's also her memoir and it is amazing. I took like a self-care break from PhD apps last week and like sat in the bath and read this and I must have like devoured the first 70 pages and she's just like, like she has diagrams of vulvas that she's drawn because she was a classically fine artist before she got into like she was studying sex and she talks about like how she got into masturbation, how she got into doing like sex education and all this like consciousness raising within masturbation and like sexuality for women and this is just like an amazing book and then the other book that I have is Sex by Design the Betty Dodson story which is her memoir and it has like pictures of her throughout her life and like pictures of her with her family and her like lover that introduced her to like mutual masturbation and just like I I literally cannot say enough good things about Betty Dodson Betty Dodson changed female sexuality for the better forever like yes. she is an icon she changed so many women's lives she like uh, I cannot say like there's enough. a for people that want to dive deeper into this because I do want this to be even though I could make this entire podcast about <laughs> I can't believe the timing and how this is aligned and yes I did start tearing up halfway through this. This is this is very sad. But for people that want to know more about Betty Dotson, her and the woman that is kind of going to continue on her legacy, her name's Carlin Ross. I actually read one of her books. One of Carlin's books is the reason I started getting interested in sexuality. She wrote about female orgasm as well and her journey through it. And you should definitely pick it up. I, I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but I'll send it to you when I'm done with the podcast and I'll write it below. Um, but they have a website, it's called dodsonandross.com. And there's videos, there's podcasts, they have galleries, mm -hmm. things to read. Like they'll answer, they, up until I'm sure her death, she answered online questions about women that couldn't orgasm, women that were having trouble with 
you know, lubrication, women having trouble in all various ways, and they just helped. Um, off of this topic, have you ever heard of the website called OMG Yes? Yeah. Okay. Cool. I love it. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Also, Betty Dodson's YouTube channel is fire. Um, I am taking a human sexuality class right now at TC. And when we were learning about sexual anatomy for like those who didn't know about the internal clitoris, our teacher showed us a video of Betty Do or professor showed us a video of Betty Dodson drawing an internal clitoris and then drawing like all the muscle and skin outside of it. It was just beautiful. Amazing. Chef's kiss. Incredible. Everybody check out Betty Dodson. But uh, we were on you and we were talking about how you came to study masturbation and sex toys. Was this kind of, so this was your awakening into knowing you were interested in sex, but how did you think to make that a clin clinical? What made you apply to teacher's college? Um, yeah, what was your process to get there? Okay, so it was like a very roundabout process. So when I was at Barnard, I graduated with a psych degree and I took a bunch of classes um, in the science and public policy department, which I don't even know if it exists anymore, even though I graduated like two years ago. Um, and I was trying to do a public health minor, but they didn't have one yet at Barnard, and I think they do now. Um, so I took a bunch of public health classes and was really interested in the intersection of psychology and public health and also sexuality. So I actually applied to work for the Centers for Disease Control or the CDC um, like early on in my senior year, like maybe spring of my senior year, and got the job on my birth, like on my 22nd birthday in the middle of the summer and I had been like convinced that I was moving back to Atlanta for you know like post-grad like I was like okay I'll go move back home with my parents and get a job in like marketing or whatever and figure it out then I ended up getting this job with the CDC that brought me back to New York and I was really hoping that I was going to get to work in like STIs or STDs or HIV or something like to me that seemed interesting and they actually placed me working with tuberculosis control which like is an interesting disease but also when I think of tuberculosis even though it's super rampant now and I like can't say that it's not feels much like talking about typhoid Mary to me like it feels very dated um so I ended up going to work for the Bureau of Tuberculosis Control at the New York City Department of Health and I was miserable I hated it I realized I do not want to do hands-on public health work and that's okay so I think I was there like three months and started applying to grad schools and I applied to only grad schools that A, didn't require the GRE because my goal in life is to never take a standardized test again. And B, Man, girl. yeah, had anything to do with sexuality. So I applied to Teachers College, which has this program. It's called the Masters of Psychology and Education or of Education or something like that. This is my second year and I still don't know the name of the master's and it has a <laughs> certificate program in sexuality, women and gender studies. And it's run by these three amazing professors that run both a concentration within the master's program and a separate graduate certificate where basically you just take most of your like elective classes focusing on sexuality or gender or women's studies. And then you do an internship related to it. And then you write your like master's thesis on a topic related to psychology and sexuality and you're done. It's like very easy for a master's. And honestly, this TC, like the master's programs and the doctorate programs at TC are fantastic. And like, 
if you're the type of person that went to Barnard and had like a really warm, fuzzy, genuine sort of experience, TC is very much an extension of that. So I love, like, I love everything about TC and I've loved the program so far. And I think I applied to it like two months into my master's program. And I was just like, well, I know I'm going to take all these classes anyway, so I may as well get a graduate certificate in it. So that's how I got to TC and to the classes that I was taking now is it was an escape from a job that I hated. Mm. But I guess I figured out that I wanted to do like an intersection of psych and sexuality when I was writing my thesis. um, Because when I was writing my thesis, I used a lot of like nonfiction sexuality books. So um, two that I used in particular are Buzz, The Stimulating History of the Sex Toy by Hallie Lieberman, who is an icon, and uh, Vibrator Nation by Lynn Camella, which is about the history of feminist sex toy shops. And so I used those two books. When I finished my thesis, I actually emailed a copy of it to Hallie Lieberman and said, hey, I wrote this thesis basically using your book. Um, It was like a really empowering experience for me it was like definitely shook the boat up a little bit so I just wanted to send it to you turns out she lived in Atlanta so we actually got to have coffee um, wow. and we hey, were everybody talking... hear that. cold cold emailing it's really important yeah. okay I will actually like make a little like stance about this I cold yes. email everyone and it's the only way I've gotten jobs it's the most, I really believe it's the most important and the best way to interact because you're just going to end up in a pile otherwise. It's really important to stand out and make a personal connection. Yeah. So I cold emailed her and sent her a copy of my thesis. And she was like, I really need to make friends in Atlanta. Um, do you want to get coffee? And I was like, yes, of course. So we got coffee and she was like, oh yeah, I know like all these amazing people in New York that work for this group called Women of Sex Technology. So she basically like introduced me to a bunch of her friends that were working in sex tech in New York. So I ended up getting like, not like kind of internships for my senior spring. So I worked a little bit with this company called Dame Products, which is a sex toy company. Um, And I was actually taking my senior spring a class with Paula Franzese in the political science department on First Amendment values and the freedom of speech. And we actually brought in my boss at the time, Alex, oh my god, Alex Fine, um, who's the CEO of Dame, about talking about how they couldn't get funding for, how they couldn't get funding and also how they couldn't advertise because sex toys are considered obscene if they're for women. Uh, I'm sorry, what? Obscene to who? Like the MTA won't, so you know how there's all these like ED drugs ads on the subway? So like, Dame Products and Unbound, which are two female-founded sex toy companies that make toys for people with vulvas and like non-binary people, they are were not they were considered like too obscene to advertise on the subway or Facebook. That's upsetting. So they actually have a great website called Approved Not Approved, where you can take like little game tests about like which ad was approved, which ad wasn't. Look at how like completely arbitrary it is. So, anyways, she came and talked to um Paula Franzese's class about the freedom of speech in terms of obscenity and female sexuality, which was amazing. Yeah, so I have to actually credit like my first connection to the professional field of working in sexuality with writing my thesis and my um, just huge set of balls to cold email people. 
And I think that's a, an incredible message for everybody in college to hear because I don't think it happens enough and I don't think people say it enough that it's really okay for you to break the mold, quote unquote, and reach out specifically to the people. I've cold emailed with no success. OMG, yes, the website, probably six times. I, I will continue to send them emails for the rest of my life until somebody reaches out. And if anybody from OMGS is listening to this, I want to work for your company. I love everything that you do and OMGS.com. So free, <laughs> you know, free marketing. Either way, though, I, I love this mentality that you have, that you're just going to go after it and you're not afraid to study the thing that you love to study because obviously sex is still taboo and, and obscene, which is an incredible thing just in, in the modern world. Um, but specifically, what about sex is fascinating to you? I know that's a broad question, but there's so many different areas of sexuality. If you were to take a clinical lens, and I know you're applying for your PhD, do you want to work with couples? Are you interested in female sexuality? Do you want to continue on the sex toy venture? Where, where do you say your interests lie? So I would say I probably have like three main interests in studying sexuality through a psych lens. And I'm actually walking kind of away from the clinical sphere, I guess, because I, putting this out there, I am a highly sensitive person and I'm an empath and I cannot be a clinician because I will take on all of my clients' feelings and just like feel them times a hundred. And that's just like self-care number one, not going to do that, putting up that boundary. So I'm actually interested more in doing advocacy and education work. So I'm going to get my PhD, hopefully, in social psych or community psychology so that I can actually like teach on a graduate and college level, um, because I think that those are probably the ages of people that like really need to hear this stuff um, about sexuality. So I would say, going back to your original question, my like three main topics that I'm interested in studying are... Um, probably female sexuality and like that kind of lumps in like orgasms and sex toys because like a lot of sex toys that are made nowadays are made mostly for women which isn't like there there should be more made for men um but Agreed. a lot of sex toys are made for women and orgasms because like everyone knows about the male orgasm but not a lot of people know about the female orgasm so that's the first part the second part which is unrelated to the first or second topic is sexual violence. So um, I currently work for Columbia's Sexual Violence Response Center as a graduate intern. Like me being on this podcast has nothing to do with that or any of that. But like, that's something that has really, sexual violence has always been something that's like really near and dear to my heart and preventing sexual assault through like actually effective means, aka not bystander intervention. And through, like, starting from the, like, way beginning, like, sex education and teaching, like, true bodily autonomy is a really important part of um, sexual assault prevention to me. So that's the second one. And then the third one is BDSM. And I think a lot of people conflate sexual violence and BDSM. And I really want to make clear that they're not related at all. Um, but I do want to study BDSM as a separate topic because I think that BDSM is a really interesting way to study the way that sex can be therapeutic to people. There's actually a great paper that was written by a Columbia psychology researcher named Danielle Lindemann um, that studies how BDSM can be therapeutic and how people use it as therapy. So I would say that 
female sexuality, sex toys, and orgasms are the first topic that I'm interested in. Sexual violence prevention is the second topic that I'm interested in. And then BDSM is the third topic that I'm interested in. So I have obviously many things to say about Go for it. (laughs) The first thing I want to say is, have you ever spoken with Kristen Kennedy from Barnard? I have never had a conversation with her. And it is one of my life regrets that I haven't um, because I've always heard amazing things from her. She has a um, colleague who works in the SVR office, Jolie, who I cannot pronounce her last name. I'm so sorry, Jolie. Um, Jolie. And they both went to the same Widener human sexuality master's program or human sexuality education master's program that I actually applied to and chose to go to TC over that program. Um, and they are incredible humans. So shout out to Jolie and Christy Kennedy or what's her name again? Kristen. Kristen Kennedy. I've heard only amazing things. I worked with her probably like the first and second semester that I was at Barnard before classes took off and I started doing more research-based, but Mm -hmm. she really focuses in on sexual assault awareness and sexual violence. She has she runs the college's sexual violence education program and Mm -hmm. she's just incredible at raising awareness about this. And she'll come and speak to all the different um, floors for the freshman and the sophomore. And she brings, this is kind of unrelated, but she brings a whole bunch of sex toys and just teaches people on different floors, different students, how to use the the sex toys. So she just sounds like you two need to connect and I can definitely connect you two. She does exactly what it sounds like you're interested in. And it's, she works obviously in the college. She has this beautiful space that she set up and she'll run these workshops. Like for example, you should look at, um, um, she, she does like healing after trauma workshops and she'll, yeah, she's just incredible. Um, I really loved working with her. She's such a positive person. And then in regards to BDSM, I'm really glad you said that the two are unrelated, but to be very honest, I don't know much about BDSM. So how Mm -hmm. did you come to study this part of sex? And yeah, where, where is this interest come from? Did you read any good books or anything like that? So I'm really going to out myself here on this podcast right now. Hey, let's go. (laughs) Um, So I actually got an interest in BDSM from becoming a part of the BDSM community. So I will be the first to say that I was a very late bloomer when it came to sex. I did not lose my, I did not have my sexual debut because I don't believe in the term virginity. (laughs) My sexual debut. That's that's one of those things. It's jazz hands. That's what people when like how people need to stop saying you're a pussy and say you're a ball sack because they're obviously weaker. Like there's just some right. changes in language that need to happen, but go on. Right. So, okay. I didn't have my sexual debut until my junior year of college. Um, and so when I first started having sex, I was a student at Barnard and I was, had my eyes open to the world of people that were in New York city. And a lot of them that I ended up, ended up interacting with, were involved in the BDSM community. And I found that the people that I was having the most um, understanding and like best communication with were people that were in the BDSM community. So through there, I just started getting more involved, like going to educational events, just like hearing more, interacting with more people. And from there, I got really interested in how people use it just to like cope with life and also to um, sort of just 
have fun and also deal with sexual trauma, but like mostly just like use it as a form to express themselves. And it's a really interesting topic to study. I have a friend who also is just, just moved to the city and is starting to become more involved with the BDSM community. And when he told me that they were the most communicative and understanding in bed, it all, it made sense to me because if you're going to engage in sex, that's not considered vanilla, you have to know what the sex is going to be. And you have to know how to explain that to the person that you're having sex with. So I think that's, it's very, it's, it's something that people definitely don't know about the BDSM community though. But fetishes don't ne- don't mean that you're a strange person or you're out there or you're doing something harmful in any way. So is that part of what you want to put out into education? Do you want BDSM to become part of the conversation again with sexuality? Yeah, I want BDSM to be stigmatized a lot less than it is. So um, for those that study like clinical psych, you've heard of like, you know, psychopathology and things like that. Um And a lot of people also talk about paraphilias, which are like, the best way to describe them is like what clinicians think are weird things to like during sex. And like some of them can be, you know, genuinely harmful to others and stuff like that. But for the most part, like things that are lumped into paraphilias are just things that like make people horny that are kind of like off the beaten path. Like, Uh, yes. For, I mean, think about it. Think about foot fetishism, right? Yeah. I mean, it's so surprisingly common and it's probably the most common. I think if when I was, I read an academic study that looked at the prevalence and the membership of fetish discussion groups, and they found that foot and foot accessories are just the most fetishized of all the non-genital body parts. Mm -hmm. It's nearly half of all such fetishes focus on feet. And my mind kind of goes to where yours does, which is one, Obviously, that's normal. If this is something that so many people are engaging in, it's it's a normal, natural part of sexuality to relate sex to things that aren't stereotypically sexual. And then also, where where does it come from in the brain? And it's just fascinating because Freud, for example, who has something to say about everything, right? So he just has something to say about all areas of sex. For, for this particular area of, of fetishism, he thought that people sexualized feet because they look like penises, which is just, there's so much, there's just such a lack of information going on. And so obviously some neuroscientist was like, what the hell? So they needed to find like a more scientific theory. And this guy from the Center for Brain and Cognition at the University of California in San Diego found that there is some cross wiring between um, the brain, like the area of the brain that's associated with genitalia and the area where the feet are, they're adjacent to each other in the brain's body image map. And so it's a lot of us might have this cross wiring that would make us more turned on by our feet being touched or sucked. And people that are amputees, if they have the phantom foot dilemma, have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They'll, they find that, that if you have this thing, some of those patients also will find sexuality within this, phantom foot. So like they'll find that even if the foot doesn't exist, they'll feel sexually towards it because their brain body map, which is just this area that um, connects where the brain is to what area of the body, it's just 
crossed over and it doesn't, it accidentally rewires it in a way that makes them turned on. So obviously everything is stemming from a certain psychological perspective, but we have labeled these things as abnormal. So I completely get what you're saying. Like all of these things have a root in something that makes complete Mm -hmm. logical sense. Yeah. And I think also specifically with like fetishes around different body parts, like let's say feet, for example, Um, I think you also want to look at like different you have to look outside sort of like the Western like medicine sphere. So like I'm thinking of when I was younger, my mom used to always take me to get acupuncture because I used to get really bad cramps. And the acupuncturist that we used to go to used to like show us the different like pressure points on your feet and all over your body. And there were a ton on your feet that were specifically for your genitalia for like dealing with vulvodynia or bad. Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but like different like, things could help with your genitalia or so I think that it's really interesting to like explore and I am also thinking of I'm sure in there's a psych class at Barnard that I came across this and there's that um map of like the body on a semicircle that where it's like the weird face and then it has like your different extremities and like body parts coming off of it and it kind of shows like where on your brain like you were talking about with the brain body map um I'm sure feet and like penises are right next to each other there no exactly and it's fascinating it's called i think that's called the homunculus right yes the distorted representation of the human body but it's based on a neurological mapping of the areas and the proportions of the human brain that have feeling in them and that's such a great point i haven't thought about the homunculus in years but that's so ages yeah also i just want to shout out to i cannot stand freud like this is one thing that grad school has challenged me on is people are like, yeah. we know that you all hate Freud. So let's like talk about the positive things that he did. And I'm like, Freud literally did not do a single good thing for a woman ever. And like some of my really amazing um, like female professors at TC have been like, actually, if you think about it, he was like one of the first like psychoanalyst, like psychoanalysts who did research solely with women. So, like, maybe he was kind of a feminist. And I was like, yes, but also, like, he did say that the clitoral orgasm was a myth. So, like. So, but, okay, so I took a class called Intro to Sexuality. Um, I'm trying to remember. It's going to come to me. But I took a class with an intro at at Columbia called Intro to Sexuality. And in this class, the professor was pretty pro-Freud in a way that I'd never experienced before. They were they, she, or him, so I might use a variety of pronouns. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in this class, we discussed this exact topic where since Freud was the first psychoanalyst, he was the first person to even bring up sexuality and for women that that it existed and that it was important and i i'm a firm believer that you cannot judge parts of the past based on what we know now obviously if freud was in the conversation now he would be the the least feminist of any of the researchers going on if you look at him in comparison mm-hmm. to betty dodd it's just a joke right but he yeah. really was the, <laughs> right but he was the first person to really discuss to bring women into this conversation so if he was for his time a pioneer for women's sexuality even if it is in the way that we need him to be now and so yes of course we have to stop talking about freud so much he's just at the basis of everything and everybody grew out of him all the conversation of sex grew out of him so our field is only here 
for him and whether we like it or not. He discussed sexuality, desire, and identity for women, even if he really fucked up with the clitoris. He wasn't a doctor, right? Like Freud wasn't even a Freudian. He didn't believe anything he was saying. He was just trying it on for size, which is, yeah, you obviously hate yeah. him, so. I mean, yeah. I am willing to entertain ideas that he um, did positive things. It's just hard for me to like let that sit, I think, um, mostly because when I talk to people who study sexuality completely outside of Freud, everyone hates him. Like, really? It's hard to come across like someone who teaches purely just sexuality studies who like actually is a fan of Freud. And I mean, it's true, like, not just... Yeah, so, like, I spent last summer, I went to Amsterdam for four weeks and took an introduction to human sexuality studies at um, the University of Amsterdam for four weeks. They have a great summer course taught by amazing people, just, like, wonderful. And they study all the stuff that you wouldn't study in America. So, like, we studied sex work for weeks. We studied ethical pornography consumption for weeks. Like, it was just amazing. And we really had a lot of things to say about Freud and not very many of them were nice. But I also no, like gave a presentation fair. on the female orgasm in that class. So I really was not going out here for Freud. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great yeah, short female... film about it too. What's it called? It's called Le Clito. It's a French short animated film about the clitoris. Of course it's and... French. Of course it's French. It's amazing because um, they basically talk about the great enemy number one of the clitoris is Sigmund Freud. So, uh, there, I think it was around that. This is a story I'll never forget from in the show to sexuality. Um, but uh, this is a story I'll never forget. I want to know if you've heard this. That obviously we used to think of in terms of sexuality studies and psychology, we thought that the pe- the vagina was just an inverted penis way back in the day. Mm -hmm. And then there's this myth. I don't know if it's a myth. I can't remember if it's fully a myth or it actually happened, but a priest. So they used to think it was an inverted penis. So therefore a woman needed to orgasm in order to get pregnant. And then this story comes out where a priest is doing, I think it's like an embalming of a dead girl's body. And he assaults her and they find out that she's pregnant. And then from there, that's kind of where Freud gets his idea that the woman's orgasm is kind of irrelevant and not useful and is nothing. Isn't that the most fucked up thing you've ever heard in your entire life? Yeah. It's really traumatizing and upsetting to hear, but this was what we learned in our intro to sexuality course. It got wild in that class. People left, people were standing up. They were upset. Like we, we talked about Freud so in depth that it, it was triggering for people. But yeah, I'll never forget. It was just one of those Columbia classes that you can never forget because it's scarred into your brain. So Yeah, there, um, there's some like that. There's definitely yeah. some like that. But I think a lot of sexuality classes, whether they're intro or advanced, definitely trigger a lot of different feelings and emotions in people because you're talking about something that for them, whether or not they've experienced it, is like so intensely personal and private whether they're like someone like me who fully outs himself as like someone who is in the BDSM community on a podcast or they're someone who doesn't even talk to their best friend about sex. Um, And there's going to be a spectrum of people, but I think that sexuality classes, if you're opting into taking one will without a doubt upset you with something that they say, or even if it's like just an idea that you have to entertain. So I think it's just interesting, but they're always great. Like I always learn something 
this sounds so cliche and I hate that I'm saying this, but at the end of the day, sex, as I said in the beginning, really does make the world go round and will impact everybody across the spectrum of sexuality from asexuality to everything in their life is about sex. It influences the way we dress, the way we joke, the way we buy, the way we talk. You know, it's addressed in all the holy books of the world and all the great religions. It's infiltrated in pretty much every part of society, right? So in many ways, sex just defines who we are. So people feel it's a part of their, it, it's so much a part of their identity that it's hard not to be triggered by these things. And a lot of neuroscientists, like there's this really eminent neuroscientist called Carl Pabram. And he, this is like from the 1950s, he described sex as literally one of the four basic human drive states, which is, you know, fighting, fleeing, sex and feeding are the most important parts of our, our world that are linked to survival. And obviously you can guess which one of those drives is the least understood and openly discussed. And because of that, it's so ingrained in our society not to speak about these things and to speak about them in depthly, where they're coming from, have these hard conversations that people aren't equipped to be able to discuss sexuality in a way that pushes the conversation forward. It, it somehow always gets pushed to the back, always put into the subconscious. People are having horrible sex into their 80s and 90s and just and it's never spoken about right so i think it's good that it triggers people it's i'm glad we're having these kinds of conversations um yeah it's important for your physical health for your mental health it's it's really yeah. just a crucial part of the world yeah and it's like i understand people who have a sort of aversion to sex and i'm not talking about asexuality because I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't call that an aversion to sex but I understand people who are either like you know like acculturated or brought up in a way where they're where they believe that sex is disgusting or something like that or right. where you just like have something where you're not into it I get it here for that understood everyone has their own like journey and sex doesn't have to be a part of it but I think that for people that sex is a part of their lives no matter how big or small you really have to recognize like how much of your life it can take up in a good way and how much of an impact it can have on your life. Like if you're having bad sex, it can really impact your mental health. And if you're having great sex, it can really benefit you in so many ways. Like look at the confidence that it can give you. Look at the like self-esteem boost it can give you. Look at the like, just like orgasms make you a happier person. There's that whole like, you know, thing from Legally Blonde where it's like, Exercise gives you endorphins. Endorphins make you happy. Happy people don't kill their husbands. Like, same is true for orgasms. It's so Just true. Saying. It really is. And But I also think when it comes to that, there's this mentality that even when it comes to sex toys, this is something I thought a lot about. So because when the conversation doesn't always involve women, it's kind of like what we're going to decide for women what it is. Like some women don't utilize sex toys. Some women don't need to masturbate if they're having great sex. Like it's more that feminism needs to take the stance that you can have any kind of sex from BDSM to the most vanilla of all kind of, of all time and be fully allowed to engage in that. Because the way that I, I hear a lot, and I, I've also spoken with a lot of people within the BDSM community. I don't know much about the, the details of it, as I said, but there's almost this mentality that vanilla sex isn't as good of sex. Yeah. So many people are having incredible vanilla sex and there's an art to that as well. There's an art to any type of sex that you want to engage in. Um, and that's, right. that's the mentality that needs to be pushed. 
So yeah, I think just like I empower everyone, like however you identify, whatever like pull you have, like just if you can feel that you're not having a good sex life and you're not enjoying yourself, like I reach out to me. I don't care. I will coach you through an orgasm. Like I am here for that because I just, people deserve good sex, especially like with the bananas time that we live in right now with the pandemic and just like being post-election, we all deserve good sex. Like solo sex is sex too. Masturbation is sex too. You don't have to engage in partnered sex to like have a good sex life. The pandemic definitely changed that for me, but, um, in the spirit of Betty Dodson, Listen, I remember when I found out the day that she died, I was actually with my partner and I said to him, I was like, I feel like I need to go masturbate to like make her proud, but I'm so sad. And he was like, Betty Dodson cares about self-care. Betty Dodson does not care about you masturbating. If you're sad, don't masturbate because of Betty Dodson. Just do whatever you need to do to heal from this death. And I was like, okay, your partner sounds incredible. Hello. Wow. He's an icon. We love him. (laughs) <laughs> so a shout out to your partner to betty dodson to all the barnard bitches who need to masturbate to all the professors that do too this podcast is for you anyone but even not masturbation anyone that just needs to partake in a better sex life we we implore you to do so it's important it's great mm-hmm. and um if this is something that you guys want to hear more about because obviously i'm very interested in this topic as well just let me know and maybe we can have this conversation again. Um, maybe like a more focused conversation that incorporates the way that sex is, you know, involved in psychology and what what to do to have great orgasms and what that all means. Because um, I'm totally down to dive into that deeper. You guys, this is Molly Schwartz. She's the best. As she said, you can reach out to her at any time. Um, she is obviously an incredible person to talk to about this topic. She knows what she's saying. Um, We love to know people like you graduated from Barnard and are out here living your best lives in the world. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Go get your rocks off. Do what you need to do. Eat from potatoes while you do it. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And you just got started. (laughs) 